0: Bibles to 1st Timothy, and we're going to uh, not really be there today, but remember that's sort of where we are, so we're going to show another segue into today's sermon. 1st Timothy. In this teaching, we found that Paul is, is, is taking great care to make sure that young Timothy is reminded of the things that he's already been taught. To make sure that he realizes the gravity of his calling and the severity of disunity. And also to be equipped very clearly and practically with the theology, with the teaching, with the doctrine, with the biblical, what we would call biblical knowledge. It's not what Paul would have called it. But the biblical knowledge of what the church is and how the church should live and how the elder, overseer, pastor, shepherds, teachers, whatever you want to call them, are called and required to mitigate and handle all these things. In the latter part of chapter 3, he says in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So here is where we've been. We've, we've segued, we've leapt out of the pages of this. I'm going to continue to do that in the weeks to come to look at what the beautiful church of Jesus Christ really is and what she ought to be. Because that's exactly what Paul's teaching the elders, myself included, to understand, to know, and to instruct. So we are here in the Lord's presence today, together as his people, the body of Christ, so that we may be instructed on how we ought to live according to the gospel. Which includes what the gospel is. As we've seen that little poem there. This mystery of godliness is not a mystery anymore. It's manifest. It's displayed to us. Jesus Christ has been shown, and by the Spirit of God, He has taught His people through the pages of the New Testament Scripture what the gospel is, who the gospel is, and to whom the gospel was sent. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 4, we see an extreme change of focus. Not that there's a new message to be dealt with, but now Paul is getting to the gravity of what's truly happening. And I I see this happening every single day. But he says now the Spirit, you see what he's saying there? God Almighty is saying. God has said. God continues to instruct. As Brother Armando read this morning, I find it interesting how Paul would approach Philemon and he would say, I have in Christ the authority to command you, but I choose to appeal to you. And see, that's what shepherds do. They appeal for the sake of Christ and the instruction because the word of God commands you. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the elders of the church are responsible and will be held accountable if they permit Tomfoolery and sinfulness and things of that nature to run them up to destroy the fabric of the body of Christ and disunity. So there are times where we have to say, according to the scriptures, this will stop. Remember, last week I talked about the rule of if it doesn't, we just decapitate people. And that's a joke. I've got no hate mail from that yet. But he says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, that's now and then, Some will depart from the faith. How do they do that? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. To the teaching of demons. And let me tell you how many times this text has been applied to me. I stopped counting. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Example, verse 3. We're not going to really go through this, but this is the sentiment through which I want to speak this morning. Who forbid marriage, require abstinence from certain foods that God created to be received thankfully by those who believe and know the gospel of grace. For everything created by, or know the truth, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it has been made, set apart, it has been made holy by the word of God in prayer. And then he commands Timothy, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good slave of Christ, being trained in the words of the faith, the definite article there, the faith, the set of doctrines and teachings, and of the good doctrine, the teaching, the instruction that you have followed. And then he gives Timothy commands and instructions who will likewise do the same thing. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself, Timothy, in godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, some of us have learned that, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Verse 10, for to this end we work and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, particularly, especially of those who believe. Commend these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation of the body, to the teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Deeply immerse yourself in them. So that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing you will both save yourself and your hearers. And that's not about redemption. That's about destruction. That's about depression. It's about disaster. It's about division. But we're not there. I'm going to be there soon. It might be January, but we're going to be there. And this <clears throat> speaks to me because it's commanded of the elders, so there's a lot there that I have to personally manage and mitigate. And beloved, I am not in the best of places. I'm not. Things are great, better, a lot better than they were, but I'm still on the best of places. The war over our thoughts and minds is constantly raging. And I'd love to say that I walk in the Spirit constantly. But I don't. And neither do you. And that is one of the reasons that we must be disciplined to come together on the Lord's day that we may receive the means of grace through which we are instructed and encouraged and delighted to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Today, I want to talk about this gospel. And I want to answer the question about what Christ accomplished on the cross. Why? The mystery of godliness. The reality of Jesus Christ coming into the world. See, a lot of people think that Christmas message, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive their King. Oh, Jesus has come. Yay, it's good news. It's not good news. That's not the good report. That's the good report coming into the world, but the good report is about the death of Jesus. Not that Jesus was born. Is it in part of it? Yes, but ultimately the efficacy, that means the thing that works, the reason the gospel actually satisfies the wrath of God, propitiates for his people, pays for 100% full and done at the cross the sins of the elect, is because he came into the world. He came into the world to die. He didn't come into the world to rule the world, to transform the world, to modify the behavior of the world, to create nations and politicians. For his sake in the world, except for their destruction, he came to the world to die. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He did not stay dead. He rose from the dead because he was not sinful in his humanity. He was truly and perfectly human and he was completely righteous in his humanity just as he is the righteousness of God in his divinity. The eternal God coming into the world that he created through the womb of a woman that he created, who, by the way, is not a virgin, After he was born. And she married her husband. I've had that argument this week. Mary had other children. But only one divinely given. By the Spirit. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. The body of the Lord God Almighty. He came into the world that He created through a person He created into a body that He created for Himself to save a people that He created for His own name. And angels look into these things. You see, First Peter, and it was proclaimed among the nations the proclamation of His coming and His living and His dying and His being raised to life. Vindicated. He is the immortal, perfect Pure righteousness of God in human flesh who has taken the sins of his people on himself and he proclaimed from the cross, it is finished. And in and on the world, in the world he was believed on, in the world, then taken up in glory, witnessed by hundreds of people. And we await him today. Now see, in the mire of our circumstances, and the mundane of this ridiculous economy and political environment, and everything else that's going on, and the vitriol reality of what our interconnectivity has brought to society and relationships, it is so easy to sit there and go, I wonder if this is a bunch of hogwash. because we look at that which is seen rather than that which is unseen. But God spoke to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53. You know the words, right? Specifically starting in verse 5, He promised, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He, by His wounds we are healed, and upon Him was the Judgment was the wrath, was the punishment that brought us peace. And like sheep, we have all gone astray. We've all wringed our hands. We've all run away. We've all, as Paul would write in Romans 3, had the venom of snakes on our lips. Our mouths are like open graves. We curse and we kill and we destroy. We vindicate ourselves. It feels so delicious to get somebody back until it's done. And then it is a bitter poison that roots the rot of our conscience. We have all turned, everyone, to our own way. And the Lord, listen to that. In Isaiah 53, we have all turned to our own way. Very few people want to get all up in arms about the fact that Jesus Christ was born into the world historically. Very few people even want to get up in arms about the fact that He was divine or that He was the Son of God People want to get up in arms when they hear that he alone is the righteousness of his people. People want to fight because they want an anchor to stand on. They want something to tether their hope to in such a way that they have attached the harness and the sails to the chute that's soaring them into glory. And they go, Look what I did. I found it and I strapped it on and I was bold. But do you know what salvation is when we are on fire and dead and decayed? God reaches in the depths of the abyss and snatches us out into the kingdom of light. That is the gospel. What have we done? Nothing. Our believing does not effectuate the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus was crushed to destroy not sin generally, but sin specifically. According to the Bible, Jesus death was for a specific people and everyone for whom he died their sins are no more. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 6, 53, fifty three six. Let's go so much scripture, we might not get out of here till one o'clock. It's all I know to do. My mind isn't, my mind isn't able to extrapolate very well at this moment. So the Bible must do that which it was intended to do. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can turn there, starting in verse 11. We hear Paul teaching this extremely frustrating, sinful little group of folks. Not a little group, but they were just messing everything up. And Paul writes to them, and they write back and said, all's well. And then Chloe goes, y'all lying. So Chloe writes to Paul, and Chloe's tattletales and said, these people, a bunch of knuckleheads, they're lying. To you, Paul. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians that we know. And basically says, I'm coming down here with a stick and I'm going to beat the dog mess out of all y'all like a bunch of bad puppies. But I don't want to do that. I'm just going to call you babies. I'm going to teach you how to grow up. Do this, do this, do this, do this. And then the second letter, he writes to them an extremely gospel-centered encouragement. Not just in the fact that God had established through his command peace peace and unity, and purity. All those things we heard in 1 Timothy chapter 4 just a minute ago. But he established a a reality that there's always going to be reconciliation for those who are in Christ. In this world! Because the Word of God compels us. So Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 writes these words, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, and that includes any form of expression or outward appearance, and not about what is in the heart. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves... It is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. See, the movies have destroyed that text. That's not about exorcism, you know. It's about the work of God the Spirit in the hearts of His people. What is the love of Christ? The gospel. His giving of Himself to save us. Perfectly and finished. Why? Verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. This is the emphasis. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now we've been learning about that over the last umpteen weeks. Verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17, 18, 19, extreme emphasis. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is dead, has passed away. Behold, look here, the new is alive, has come. All this is from God, who through Christ, past tense, reconciled us. To himself and gave us now the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting. How does he do that? Not counting their trespass against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ Beloved, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we would be, and I'm just going to put that in the proper form, the righteousness of God. It's not a hope. We just don't read things a little bit complex anymore in syntax. We might become the righteousness. We are the righteousness of God. Keep your mind there and think about Ephesians 5, 25, 26, and 27. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Emphasis, 26. Why did he do? What did he do? That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. That means without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. We know Hebrews 7, 9, I'm going to get there. 10 and other places like that teach that as well. So what are these two passages? What does 2 Corinthians chapter 5, these 10 verses, and then those three verses of Ephesians 5 show us? And, of course, the four verses of Isaiah 53. It shows us that the work of Christ in His death did something. It accomplished something. And whether you saw it or not, whether you heard it or not, what it did is it actually judicially, spiritually, realistically, literally paid for the guilt of the sins of his people, once and for all. It's not a hypothetical. The death of Christ did not create a bank account or a bag of forgiveness that's available. The love of God is not available to all. That's nonsense. The Bible doesn't teach that. It might be an inference, but if it is an inference, it's an inference that's come through culture it's not an inference that's come through scripture. It's a bunch of pretext. What's that mean? People picking verses and sentences and word combinations that make it sound right rather than reading the whole letter of 1 Corinthians and building their argument on the context of what Paul is trying to teach or what James is trying to teach or what John or Luke or Matthew or any of the other apostles might have to teach. We don't pick a sentence out and create an entire teaching out of it. That sentence has a context. I was in a public place this past Friday, and some of the help sitting in there were talking trash. And I could hear all of it. And I'm sitting there going, I know they're not talking about the people that just walked out. And they were. And then the phone rang, and they talked about that person. And I'm sitting there going, people are listening out here. So I went on Facebook, I put, someone is always listening. And I love it, because as a thinker, you know what happened, is I went and took and put out there, and the context in which you read that depends on how you responded to it. NSA, <laughs> big brother, not in this house, I'm off the grid, you know. So they got that mindset. Some took it as the Heavenly Father is always attentive to our needs. Which is true. Someone is always listening. I took it as, I can hear y'all talking trash about people. Stop! This is terrible. Some even reached out and said, I'm glad you listen. Can we talk? <laughs> so there's always a context. And the context of Scripture must be together or we'll misunderstand the point. Beloved, don't take my word for it. Sit down and read two or three letters and get to the point. If we have to go to a Google search or to a Logos software or to a dictionary or to a commentary to figure out what we think something's being said being said according to the scripture, we are not learning it. We are recapitulating, parroting someone else's idea. And unless we're in academics And have to do that for the sake of what we're studying, it's a very poor and dangerous practice of the church. Very dangerous. For if a man is not alive today to teach you his points, he's not worthy of listening to, except in a vacuum. You see what I'm saying? Well, who agrees with me? Well, let's just look over the last 5,000 years and see. That's great. Enjoy it. Well, look at these idiots over here that disagree with me. See, that's how we do it. That's the context in which we put it. Well, here are the heretics. Here are the Orthodox folks. And then those guys are saying, we're the Orthodox folks. They're the heretics. Doctrines of demons. So when it comes to the death of Christ, there is only one right established expression of what it accomplished, and that is found in the, in the whole council of God's word. And if you understand how to read the Bible, how do you understand how to read the Bible? Just do it. Just read it. Don't do like me. My family like to read books through the years, and I'm like, like, what's going on? What are they talking about? So I'll go read the last chapter of the book. Yeah, I know how it ends. That's my context. I don't want the journey. I just want the notes. That's the world we live in. We want the Cliff's Notes. Give me the theological answer. Give me the quick card in the back of the book. I think most of us, if we were—and I know this because for years a lot of guys carried around study—what study, are those things called? Study Bibles. That wait, you had to actually pay a bag fee when you took them on an airplane. Sorry, sir, that's going to cost you twenty bucks. I mean, literally, gave them away at conferences. These big old fat study Bibles that weighed about fourteen pounds, and there was a ton of them in the. Airport, because they weigh too much. You've got to take this book out. Your luggage is too heavy. But we would much rather just have the footnotes that are Scripture and all of the answers. Who wants the math textbook when the teacher's addendum in the back gives us the A? That's not the way to work. And beloved, there's power in hearing the Word of God read to you. The scripture in the New Testament, I'm going to go through a lot of scriptures. As a matter of fact, I have 27 verses. It's rapid, though. You know, I talk fast. I don't want to see any... We're not auctioning anything up here, so just get ready. But there are three or four specific things in our English translation that we see the apostles use in relation to the work of Christ. They, they, they use the word blood a lot, you know. If you find some of the cults around here, they're like, well, we removed the word blood. I mean, you know, okay. The word blood, the word body, the word death, the word person, and the word cross. The reality of all these things. They all mean the exact same thing. They are metaphors for the sacrificial death of Jesus. Okay? I don't want to get into Leviticus. I don't want to go to Deuteronomy. I don't want to get into all these things. I've, I've, I've done some time in, in Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, and, and, you know, we know, we understand the wages of sin. We understand that God in His perfect righteousness and justice must punish wickedness and evil and rebellion. And we're not going to get into... You know, the philosophers and, and what? well, is he maniacal? Is he mean? You know, what's going on? No, we're going to take it at face value and understand just very simply that we've been taught by God that we deserve the righteous wrath and anger and justice of God Almighty. But in his sovereign electing grace, he created the world in order to create a people for himself. To establish his righteousness in himself by giving giving his son in place of his people a substitution. You would be shocked at the number of historical figures even in the present day who stomp their feet against Jesus being a punishment, a substitute punishment. They stomp their feet at it. Why? Because then he is no longer their righteousness. They have done something to obtain something that Jesus offered. Beloved, that's hogwash. It's a false gospel. We don't teach people a false gospel. We teach people the true gospel. Scripture says in Romans 3, 25, God put forth Christ. He put him forth as propitiation. Propitiation. That means to satisfy his own wrath through faith in his blood to demonstrate his justice. How did he do that? By passing over former sins. Forbearing former sins, the present day, He's the Just and the Justifier of all who rest and trust in Christ. So, in those areas, the word body, blood, death, person, cross, etc., they all mean the sacrificial death of Christ. Listen to the contextual evidence, and don't take my word for it. Go back in and listen. And ris- and go back in and listen to all of it. Go back in and read and listen. That's a new word. I'm gonna get a T-shirt. Listen. So we read and listen. Don't let me forget that. That's a good idea. It's not, but anyway. John 12, 24, you don't have to go here. It's going to be a shotgun blast. Christ is telling about seeds having to fall into the ground in order to produce life. That's a picture of himself. He must die in order for us to live. His death produced life. It didn't make life possible. It didn't make life available. It didn't make life hopeful. Hope is... And wish are two different things. A hope is what you are certain of. A wish is a hope it works out. See how we use the words interchangeably? We've ruined language. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. 2 Corinthians 5. We were just there. He died for those who no longer live for themselves, but those who died for them and were raised again. We are dead. And I'm going to go back to that text in a minute. In 2 Corinthians 5. Romans 5, 6. While we were powerless, while we were still sinners, Christ died for in the place of the ungodly. Verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9 of Romans 5. We have been justified. That means we have been counted righteous. How? By His blood. By His blood. Why the blood? The blood is proof of death. The water and the blood ran out. Look at the imagery there. Look at the imagery there in 1 John. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Romans 5.10 I know these aren't necessarily in order. I just pasted them in as I could because I knew it would take me four hours to flip through all this. Romans 7 Through Christ's body He died. We have died to the law through the body of Christ. It means it no longer has power over us to condemn us and put us in prison. Like if The president or the governor or whoever decides that all those who are under the law and are in the jails and in the prisons, they decide that that particular law is no longer something that is going to bind people, then they have to let them all out. There's nothing. The law cannot bind the believer. The law cannot bind the elect. Injustice because Jesus Christ has taken it. In our flesh, in our nature, are we bound? Absolutely. Can we learn from it? You betcha. But obeying it will not get us any closer to the righteousness of God than digging a hole and putting our face in it. Peter has a lot to say. Chapter 1, verse 2, verses 18 and 19 The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, which is a picture of his death, and the fulfillment of the prophecy of the prophets and of God. We know that the bulls, the blood of bulls and goats did not satisfy. The scripture, Peter talks about being his precious blood that we redeemed from our empty, vain lives through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, according to uh, Peter in uh, 1 Peter 2.24 he bore our sins in His body on the tree in order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1.7 We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Ephesians 2 We once who were far away have been brought near. How? Hey, y'all, come on. No. No. Don't y'all want to get out of here? No. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. The death of Jesus. When I taught Ephesians and Hebrews to my high school class over, what, about three or four year period, it seems, I'd always used the podium and talked about how if Christ is here, if righteousness is at the top of it, and underneath the podium is the, whole, is the totality of all the nations of the world throughout all of history. And you see that the Jews hovered around the top of the underside. But they still weren't on top. And everybody else was far away. And the blood of Jesus goes over the ledge of debauchery. Over the ledge of death. Over the ledge of being dead in our sins and our minds. And covers the elect of God. And are snatched up over the crevice. Snatched up over the cliff. Pulled out of the abyss. And put into the light of Christ. The death of Christ accomplished that. It purchased them. When one comes to believe that that accomplished work is something that they trust and know. Jesus doesn't dip into His bag of blood and sprinkle them. Their sins have been forgiven in the death of Christ. Theological philosophy, philosophical theology has put burdens on our minds and bodies and faith in such a way that we've lost the simplicity of how a child should embrace the reality of the gospel. God the Spirit gives faith as a child. I trust. I know. We've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We're no longer foreigners, but we are citizens of the household of God. Ephesians 2.16 says God has reconciled both Those who were hovering under the edge and those who were far away, Jew and Gentile. Both, how? By the death of Christ. Through the cross. Having put to death the enmity. Through the death of Jesus Christ. In Colossians, Paul says, God was pleased, how is it? To reconcile all things to himself, having made peace by the blood of the cross of Christ. Verse 22, in that same chapter 1 of Colossians. is that we have been reconciled by the body of Jesus, by the flesh of Jesus. And it's Paul using that same language he uses in Ephesians 5 to present you blameless, to present you perfect and unblemished and holy in His sight. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says that God canceled the law, the debt, the indictment. He canceled the indictment. How? Through the death of Jesus Christ. We go to the book of Hebrews. We can just read the whole thing. But we see Jesus crowned. It, said, it says in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that it was fitting for God in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through His pain and suffering. What does that mean? It's a completed. It doesn't mean that Jesus got better. It means that it was completed. I've been writing some books through the years and I've lost some of them. They're unfinished. When I finally get to the point of writing and finishing them, editing them, they'll be perfected. They're finished. It's done. Okay, there we go. It's a poor example, but Jesus, He finished the work. Destroying what? The one who has the power of death, the enemy. And freeing those who were enslaved by death. Hebrews 2.14. Hebrews 9. Christ entered into the holy places, leaving what? His blood. Where the blood of bulls and goats and doves and flour. Yes, if you were poor and you didn't have the money to buy an animal or to bring an animal, you could bring flour and they'd sprinkle flour over the Holy of Holies in your stay. It was a sign. It was a symbol. It was an act of obedience. It was a religious rite where you walked in. You knew that the priest would take that which represented your household and would sprinkle it over the mercy seat of God, the, the cherubims whose angel, whose wings in that statue covered the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And inside that ark was the law of God that condemned all humanity. And the only way that God wouldn't open that box and kill everybody who touched it is that the blood of a perfect sacrifice would have to represent something else. Beloved, if Jesus Christ's death, His blood, the cross, and His life and body did not represent the elect of God, we are damned where we sit. And we are not. The blood of Christ will cleanse our consciences From the things and the acts and the thoughts that lead to death. Including unbelief. The scripture says that he is the mediator, Hebrews 9.15, of the new covenant. That by the means of his death, he became the ransom to free his people. From what? From their sins under the first covenant. Unto what? The promise of eternal life. Scripture teaches, Hebrews 10.10 says... That we've been made holy through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. 1 John 1, 7 By the blood of Jesus, His Son, it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. In the last book of the Bible, John's revelation, no S. It was one revelation, not two. Apocalypse means revealed. The things that Jesus showed Him he wrote down to encourage the saints. In the very first chapter in verse 5, the scripture says that Christ loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Holy, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb to take the scroll. Worthy is the lamb to take the scroll which is the oracle of God, the proclamation of God that he would send the seed of the woman And through the seed of the woman, he would crush the head of the serpent. He would undo the curse of death for his people. Worthy are you, O Lamb of God, to take the scroll, to open it, to read it, and to be the propitiation, to be the wrath bearer for your people. Worthy are you, O Lamb. It was slain before the foundations of the world. Did Jesus die before He was incarnated? No. But God is eternal. He does not exist in the proximity of time. And He's not bound to that which He created. It would be like your car telling you where to go and when to get up. Sorry you can't breathe right now because we've got to go to the store. I'm going to shut off your lungs until we get there. Worthy. Is the Lamb. And by the blood of the Lamb of God, every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every people, the world will be saved through the Lamb of God. But it does not mean every single person. It means all those for whom He died from all nations, tongues, and tribes. And the context proves that. And if you want to go to 1 Peter, you want to go to all these other places in Timothy and all, and we want to spend some time... I've probably got six hours of podcasts on those very things grammatically. don't want to go through it again. I'm trying to erase that stuff. But just read it. Let the Word of God teach you. The question now is, we have established very clearly, not only in context, but also in many, many little pretexts and proof texts, that Jesus died and accomplished redemption. He accomplished forgiveness. His death satisfy the wrath of God? Now the next question is very obvious. We've already answered it, but for whom? In Matthew 1, Jesus is talking to the people, and He says what? I mean, if you haven't read Matthew or Luke in a while, y'all do it. It's hard for me to read it. I, I embrace it. And I love it, but it's... It, it, burdens me so much that I get emotional over the hearing of it because the brass bold condemnation of the Pharisees is just awful. So I have such tenderness toward people who are wrong and act sinful because they're acting just like the condemned. And we aren't the condemned, Paul would say. So therefore, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. You've been called to life. Live in a manner worthy. We don't get up every day and fear that our Father's going to kick us in a mud hole because we're not going to live right. We know we're not going to live right, so we strive to live according to the gospel of grace and, and be forgiven. That's not a burden. It's a, it's a blessing. It's a praiseworthy existence. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, Jesus says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For He will save, which is Yeshua, Yahweh saves is what the name means. God saves. For He will save His people from their sins. John 6. And this is where you get the evangel. You go to the Gospels. You get the polishing and the exposition of that teaching of this gospel truth in the lives of God's people through the letters, the correction, the training, the rebuke, the encouragement, the exhortation, the admonishment, which is basically listen up with a little bit of a warning. And in John chapter 6, what does Jesus do? He says, I came to save those who the Father gives me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And all that come to me I will never cast away. But I will raise them up. He was vindicated by the Spirit through the resurrection of the dead. He finished the work of redemption. It's a done deal. Salvation is accomplished. And it is applied only to the people for whom he died. The elect of God. And it is applied by grace. Grace alone. The death of Christ. The reason you do not come to me is because you do not belong to me, Jesus says. The reason that you cannot come to me is because you are not of my fold. There are others who are of my fold. There are sheep that have yet to come to know me. But I will find them. I will find them. And I will send you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James. I will send you to the far reaches of the world. And y'all are going to stay over here in Palestine. But I'm going to get another one. The one that hates you. Unto death, his name Saul of Tarsus. And I'm going to bring him into the fold. And I'm going to let him go over there to Asia. And I'm going to let him go to Spain. And I'm going to let him go to Rome. And I'm going to let him go to America. You know, he didn't come to America, but the message did. That was dangerous. I'm sorry. You read the book. The message came, but Paul didn't. And Jesus didn't either. For those of you who don't get that joke, it's not funny. But Jesus is like, you'll do greater works than me. Than this. By proclaiming the works that I've accomplished, you see. And more and more and more, we'll see. In John 10, Jesus says the shepherd, the good shepherd, I am the good shepherd. The metaphor is not just for us to figure out. He explains it. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep, not for the goats, not for the wolves. The wolves come in to seek and destroy. The wolves come in to try to burden you, to tell you that you're not a sheep, to tell you that you don't have the right knowledge, to tell you that you're not good enough, to tell you that you're not living rightly. The wolves come in and try to bind you up because when the wolf binds you up, he owns you. And Paul's going to get there in 1 Timothy. He gets upset about the wolves when he's writing 1 Timothy and he gets to 2 Timothy. It's even more. Jesus got upset about wolves. He said, It'd have be been better for them never to be conceived in their mother's womb and can be born into the world. He said, It would be better for those who cause a sheep to stumble in their faith to have a millstone tied around their neck and to be thrown in the deepest cavern of the sea than to face the wrath of God. Beloved, this is not a joke. The gospel is not a joke. The gospel is not some you know, Americanized rendition of spirituality that makes us feel good about ourselves. No, the gospel is about the face of God being revealed to a people that He made to reveal Himself through by sending His Son to save them. Jesus says in John 15 that He has made His people His friends. That he's laying down his life for his friends. In Acts chapter 20, it teaches that the gospel, the death of Christ, was for the church. And Ephesians 5 teaches us that it is for his bride. I want you to think about the emphasis of marriage. Marriage is a union between a man and a woman forever. It's not about all the perks and privileges of the world today and the tax exemptions and all the other stuff to be able to say, look at our kids. Those are just extra benefits of living in the world and society in which we live. But marriage in and of itself is a picture of the gospel. It is not easy. It is not going to be always a bed of roses. It lets you lay on the thorns. But, But, you know, it's going to be a depiction of Christ in the church. And if anybody in a marriage steps out of that marriage and does something that they shouldn't do or abuses someone, it's as if, if it displays Christ, it's as if Christ were to abuse His people. And what wolves and legalists and false professors and perfectionists do is that they come along and they say, the work of Christ is... Is sufficient. Hallelujah. Oh, wait a minute, but not for you. So the only way they can get around that logically is to know some divine truth that's been given them by the Spirit of God directly that someone in their face is an absolute reprobate. Because otherwise it's just a circular idiocy of saying something that they can't know, but they say they know. That they can't know, but they say they know. But they... Oh, so God had to speak to you personally. That doesn't happen outside of the reading of the Word. And don't take my word for it. Jesus is not about multiple brides. Jesus is not about, well, the Old Testament had multiple wives. That doesn't mean that it was right. When did historical narrative become prescriptive? Actually, Wisdom says, don't do that. Wisdom says, look at history and do the opposite. Those who are chosen in Christ. Now go back up. Go back up to Ephesians 5. I'll start there. And bring those emphasis to light. Husbands. Andros. Head. Something's the head. In our culture, it means it's the boss. Was Jesus the boss in his earthly ministry? It's a trick question. Was he the boss? The answer is no. Nowhere in the Bible does Jesus stomp his feet and root himself as the authority He always points to the Father. Father, I do not speak of my own accord, but I speak that which the Father is speaking. I do not do this of my own will, but the Father who sent me, I do what He's doing. You see the works of God, now I do the works of God. You hear the words of God, now I am the Word of God. I do these things that the Father may be glorified. And then in the moment before His arrest, He says some things in His prayer. He says, Father, glorify Yourself and glorify the Son. Reveal me for who I am. And in His death, listen to this, in His death He became the husband of His bride. In His submission to die, He became the head. That He might set her apart. Who? His wife, His bride. Not everybody. Not every person in the world. There's nowhere, nowhere, not one place in the Bible that teaches the hypothetical idea that the gospel is available to all. Are we to preach it to all? Yes. But that's why evangelism... since the 18th century, has just been debauchery. I know that's hyperbole, but it's been ridiculous. Because there's some sense in which we as people have gotten creative to try to get people to respond and react and do something according to the gospel. So instead of God saving a people who gather together and grow in grace, according to the prescription of Scripture... We've done a real good job of taking Christ and the cross and his finished work out of it. And in an attempt to justify our own insecurities about sovereignty, we've established this tether to the Finneyism and the Grahamisms and all the other isms and bisms and tisms around the world and all these historical monikers, especially in the United States, where every cult that exists in the world comes from. Because that's what the Constitution allows Freedom of religion. Thank God. We lose sight of the fact that we are inundated or infiltrated or poisoned to such a degree as 21st century people in our evangel and our evangelism. Our gospel, even in the best of circles, is always. Always has the dust. You ever swept a concrete slab? <laughs> I mean, my garage has been there for nine and a half years, and I still sweep concrete dust up. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to breathe this. You go inside, and you got white powder all around your nose, and that's with a mask on. That's the gospel problems in the Church of America today, especially in reform circles or sovereign grace circles. We become one of the biggest cult-like people holistically of anybody because we hate everybody we're grumpy we fuss and complain God bless America Jesus is my joy ah! I mean you know well I'm gonna find another Jesus how about this one but the elect of God will not stay with another Jesus they will come to the true Christ Beloved, we have a responsibility not to be inundated. We need to recognize there's dust in our nose. And we don't even know it. So listen. Pay attention. Be discerning. Be critical of your own thinking. For once, realize that humility recognizes the lack of it. To say I'm humble proves you're not. The humblest of person thinks themselves extremely arrogant. Christ gave himself up for his bride that he might set her apart. Not in a harem. Not as a property. Our world is messed up. I mean, I could segue into a whole bunch of stuff here. but He cleansed her by dying. By the body that he was crushed and the water that flushed out through the asphyxiation process of crucifixion and the blood that spilled out washed us. And God the Father who put Him on the cross took pleasure in that. Not my words, the Scripture. He took pleasure in And the spilling of the fluids of life from the side of His Son who had died. Why? Because of His own purpose. He chose to display Himself through the love for His people. For whom Christ died. Why would He do such a thing that He might present the church to Himself in splendor? How many of us would not even get up off the couch to help our neighbor much less lay down our lives to help our enemies. And that's not an indictment because we're not Christ. We're not the Christ. Even if we did it wouldn't do anything. That the wife that the bride might be holy and without blemish. I don't know about you But I've yet to meet anybody, husband, wife, kid, grandma, grandpa, auntie, uncle, auntie, uncle, however you want to say it, ever, who was without blemish. Even the most perfect of infants are problematic. And some of them are just ugly. Be honest. But yet here we stand without blemish because of the death of our Savior. It's done. It wasn't what you and I did to accomplish that, to apply that to our lives. God has done that. How? Back to 1 Corinthians. I mean 2 Corinthians 5. Quickly, I know, I'm almost done. That's the what, that's the who, now the how. See, I don't do outlines. They just sort of come to me when I'm finished. That's what an editor's for. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, latter part of it says, we have concluded this, that one, Jesus the Christ has died for all. Now who's he talking to? The church. All of us. Christ has died for all of us. Therefore all have died. Oh, y'all, I'm so glad. I'm not as smart as I used to think I was. Because this text has I have opined in my personal hammock over this many, many times through the years. And what is it that Paul's trying to say? This is deep, it's not deep, it's pretty simple. Jesus Christ as a substitute represented the elect of God. We as sinners deserve the wrath of God justly in holiness, in righteousness, and in justice. And so when Jesus died, we died with Him. We paid, the debt of our sin has been paid by Jesus. It's as if we died. Ah, just as satisfied. But wait a minute, the substitute wasn't guilty of the offense. He's alive again. Well, if we died with Him, we raise with Him. So when Jesus took on our sin, we got His righteousness. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. The old has passed away. That's the gentle way of saying someone has died. Uncle T had an uncle. He passed away. My dad called me. Uncle T passed. He didn't mean pass the exit, past the driveway passed. Grandparents other family members, they've passed. Passed out of life into death. Except in the gospel we pass out of death into life. So the old has passed away. We have died in Christ. Christ's death is effectual for us and is mutually representative of us as a people. Individually and collectively. Collectively. And look, behold, it's like magicians, we love that word, behold, there's nothing in my hands and now poof, here's a banana. World hunger, solved. Behold, the new has come. Now see, false gospel representations would say the new is your changed life. The new is you no longer say ugly dude words. You no longer think ugly dude thoughts. Yes, you do. Anybody can grow and mature in their behavior. Unbelievers, atheists. It's funny. All the atheists that I have as acquaintances, and so-called friends. You know, I hate to say it to my friends, because oh my God, I have atheist friends. I have atheist professors in seminary. Just because you can teach it, right, doesn't mean you believe it. And none of them were pagans from the point of view of what we would think pagans are. They didn't have horns come out of their heads. They didn't sacrifice cats on Fridays. They didn't walk around blaspheming. Until they said, "I I don't believe the Bible's true, but it's a fantastic piece of literature. You wouldn't have known Some of you know people like that. That you may have thought were your brother or sister in the faith for years and then finally they go, I ain't never really believed this. Really? So it's not about what we present. Is what we present important? Absolutely, because it identifies our Savior with what we do. It's like my father always telling us, Boy, your word and your name don't mess my name up. And he was harder on me than the other ones, but don't mess my name up. Behold, the new has come. We are alive. We've been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is a finished work. The New Testament establishes and affirms effectual accomplishment of the body and the blood and the cross and the death of Christ for the elect. It is a done deal. We call this theologically limited atonement. Atonement meaning to be made at one. Atonement in the Old Testament to satisfy wrath and to pay for sins. Particular Redemption, the salvation of a particular people. Beloved, it is a subtle darkness that creeps into our midst. And if we are the buttress of the truth, if we believe that God has vindicated His glory through the death and the resurrection of His Son to save a people for Himself, then we must hold fast to that, not with bigotry, but certainly with prejudice not against others or other ideas, but in the sense that we are going to hold fast to the truth with humility and with hope and with love and with gentleness and with respect, knowing that if it were not for the power of the grace of God for us, we would have never seen it to begin with. And because we now see it, we know that 2,000 years ago when Christ said it was finished, He meant for us. So we are done. We stand redeemed. And this is the work of Christ on the cross. And this is the baby steps of the the reality of it. Beloved, there's so much more that we could talk about. Justice and justification and adoption. All these things. But ultimately, our sins are forgiven through the death of Jesus. Let us rejoice in that. Let us be at peace in that. And make sure that that Truth empowers us to live accordingly with the people around us. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the truth of the gospel, Lord, for using my mouth and the lack of my mind to portray the words of your word. Your, your word is faithful. You are faithful. Your word does not return to you without calls and work. It is always active and living and breathing And so, Father, for that, I am so thankful that I am not anything but an instrument to speak that which you are doing. And the power is all yours. So, Lord, let us be a people that manifest your power to teach us who we are and what you've done for the sake of Christ, we pray.